The world around us is changing rapidly. Fundraisers and nonprofit marketers like you have to be flexible and innovative to continue to overcome the challenges you face. We're Pursuant, and we're here to provide you with the tools, insights, and strategies you need to get you where you want to go. You're tuned in to the Pursuant Listening Experience. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Pursuant Go Beyond podcast. I'm your host, Leah Davenport, and today I am sitting down with two ladies that I am really excited to have a conversation with. And the first is our Pursuant Giving DNA General Manager, Rebecca Segovia. And our guest today is Barbara O'Reilly, and she serves as the Principal Consultant at Windmill Hill Consulting. So thank you, Barbara, for joining us today. Oh, I'm delighted, Leah. Nice to see you again, Becca. Good to see you too. So excited. So Barbara, I would love to hear from you first. So in the areas that you, the fundraising areas that you consult in at your firm, could you just tell us a little bit more about the work that you do with your clients and some of the general challenges that you are helping them navigate, especially in kind of the turbulent atmosphere that we've been in for the last year plus? Turbulent is an understatement, I feel like. (laughs) So my goal is to help organizations of all sizes raise more money. That's what their primary goal is. But what I do is I help them think about what are all those components that are going to be successful for them, not only to scale, but to sustain that growth. So we will look at how to tell their story better, how to use data to inform their approaches, their strategies, how to empower their staff and their board to really step into the the roles that they can play in inspiring stronger donor relationships. And so I look at it from a very holistic perspective of what are all the components that they need to have in place to be more effective. Thank you. I love what you mentioned about donor relationships because a little bit later in our conversation, we're going to talk about some numbers when it comes to retention. And Retention and relationships go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. You can't have good retention if you don't have good relationships. And so you recently completed research with Adrian Sargent, our friend over in the UK, who conducts research on a number of things within fundraising. And you completed a study with him specifically looking at development planning. And so development planning is one of those things that will look at kind of all areas of of fundraising, as well as using data to help drive those plans. But just kind of for the sake of all of our viewers or listeners today, could you unpack a little bit for us, what is a development plan? Some of us might work in a different area of fundraising or or we are a marketer at a nonprofit, and this might be a little bit outside the realm of our experience. So let's If you don't mind, let's define this so we're kind of all on the same page. Of course. So we all know about fundraising goals. What's the amount that every organization, you know, is set to raise for that that fiscal year? So the, the, the development plan is actually the roadmap. What do we need to do to get to that goal and hopefully exceed that goal? And it's so it can be as complex or as simple as the organization can handle. And I like to think about it as a starting point of breaking down all the sub goals that will help the organization get to that ultimate financial goal. So it could be how much do they need to raise in their annual giving? How much do they want to set for a target for mid-level, perhaps major giving, monthly giving, if they can break it down into those distinct activities. 
how much might they be looking to raise amongst their corporations, foundations, events, things like that. And so from there, all of those sub goals roll up to that, that overall fiscal year goal. But more importantly, to get us out of that mindset, especially our boards, if I will be completely honest, our boards often have a mindset of, are we hitting our goals? And they actually don't know everything that goes into that determining factor for success. So what are the actions, what are the tactics and the strategies that are going to help the organization move more closely to hitting or exceeding that goal? So it will be, you know, mapping out the timeline for activities. It might be setting goals around retention or upgrade, percentage of upgrades, average gifts that they might want to hit. What are the communications, the events, the meetings that they want to try to to have? And and when I work with organizations on developing their own development plan, you know, it doesn't have to be exorbitant in detail, but it needs to be something that they can own, they can manage, and they can keep track of to keep them on on the path towards that, that financial goal. I sometimes too find a visual of that really important. And so back in um, my days of fundraising and having to build out those plans, I kept it on a simple Excel sheet, Yeah, you know, simple, relative, (laughs) but I tried to at least be able to visualize for me, I'm a visual person to be able to visualize, okay, these are the different levels of the pyramid that I'm playing in. So annual mid-major plans, corporations, (laughs) as you talked about. And then I would literally line it out over all the months, see what the overarching kind of themes could be, where their quarterly themes, monthly themes, weekly themes, daily things, when you got into themes, when you got into social. And then what are the different activities that we need to be paying attention to? And then how can we, you know, after you get into the weeds of all that, that can feel like a lot or seem like a lot, but if you can put it on paper and be able to visualize it. Then it allows you to say, okay, these are all the things that need to happen in the mail and digital and social. Oh, by the way, this is what we're potentially talking about there. How does that, you know, feed into major donor lunch, not major donor lunch, a mid-level luncheon that's coming up or the major donor event? Like, is there a narrative that we can use to create that holistic case for support? Mm -hmm. And regardless of if you're a major donor or an annual fund donor, that you're kind of hearing the same message. Because we do know that sometimes when you put your major donors in the mail or do a phone call or an email that actually helps raise their retention and also raise the amount that they give to you. And so I love the thinking here of like, let's build out the plan and then let's visualize, let's look at that plan and let's work it. And when, when you see that discipline around being able to do that, that's when you really start to see organizations, you know, go from good to great. And so I love that you're doing that with the clients that you're working with. And I love that Dr. Sargent and a few of you took the time to say, okay, let's just go. We, we think that the plans are important. Let's go make sure that they actually make a difference. And when fundraisers say, yes, if I put the plan in place and then we're all aligned around that goal, we actually see change in our organization and change for the better. That's right. I'm a visual person too, Becca. And so as you were describing it, I was sort of seeing it as well uh, and, and seeing examples that I that clients of mine have sort of started as a, as a starting point. And what it actually helps to do is when you map it out in whatever way, whether it's Excel or some other document, some other format, it helps to also break down the silos internally within the development yeah. department. So whether it's a development department of three, one, you know, 20, 50, 100, it helps everyone to see what are all those components, all the channels that we are communicating and offering to engage with our donors and our potential donors. Can we make sure that our our messaging is in sync with each other? Can we make sure that we are building off of each other? Are there gaps? 
are there particular sort of crunch points where everything is happening at once? So how do we, you know, maybe redistribute that so that our staff don't become burned out a third of the way through the fiscal year? So it, it actually helps everybody internally to see that there's you know, there is not that events will play into communications and communications plays into increased donor engagement and, and annual and major and mid, however you define those, are all interrelated with each other. I love that. My favorite thing is silo busting. Yeah. <laughs> it actually exactly. ends up making us more <laughs> efficient. And I love that you just talked about it across the development team when you have that one team mentality and then we can all work together. It also gives a donor a better experience because they maybe aren't going to get seven emails on the same day because we weren't coordinating or letters right. or what have you. Yeah. Yeah. The other silo busting that I see happen, I'm curious if you see it too, is between marketing and fundraising. Because when they start to work together with that core messaging from acquisition all the way, you know, through to the events and um, beyond, that's where real magic can happen. For sure. And we have to be thinking about this along that whole continuum and about the the donor experience. You know, mm-hmm. it's funny, before COVID, in early 2020, I was starting to think about organizations that have multi-entry points for people mm-hmm. to get involved with the organizations, whether it's volunteers or whether they've got sort of a shop, you know, a retail aspect as donors, as other engagement points. And I was trying to, I I was reflecting on all the ways that if any one of those experiences is negative, it will impact all the other uh, engagement points. And I think, you know, not every organization is going to have multiple channels like that, but it is all about that donor experience. And so that we know that that positive experience is going to keep them around longer. It's going to make them feel more connected. Light may also lead to upgraded giving. So I feel like the, the more we can silo bust and have marketing understand how their work actually helps to support strong fundraising messaging and vice versa, the more seamless the communications and the experience and relationship will become for the external stakeholders. Absolutely. I also love you said something about data at the very beginning of yeah. um, our conversation and letting we sometimes say like, let data be the diplomat. And so mm-hmm. being able to pull all of that data together and help inform those strategies, I think is really important, especially as we're looking at what's happening coming off of 2020, where mm-hmm. we've got some retention, although donors and dollars are up, we've got some retention issues. And then we've got some opportunities. So we've got all these new people that are on our file. So what is the correct um, donor journey to put them on as they, if they're new, as they introduce themselves and, or get introduced to the organization versus those that are reactivating and maybe have kind of found, okay, this was an organization that I gave to at some point and yeah. I stopped and now I'm excited to be giving to them again. How do we keep them on mm-hmm. so that we can get them to become multi-year donors for us and potentially upgrade into the mid or major or become a sustaining donor. And so all of these things need to be taken into account when we're thinking about the plan. So what's the data say? And then how does that inform the strategy that we want to put in place in order to achieve that overarching fundraising goal, whatever's been set? Yeah, that's it. Um, exactly right. And, you know, we've got, you alluded to the the retention rates in the sector and, you know, the fundraising effectiveness project numbers came out and the numbers are going down. And this has long been a personal soapbox of mine in anything I write or present about, and you know this, because it's this is an issue that we, we there's a complacency around the fact that, you know, on average, organizations are losing 60% of their donors each and every year. And that's a churn that we just can't afford. Can't uh, to, for it. To, we can't afford it. We, we, you know, we've got overstretched staff. We've got, 
you know, uh, increasing demands for you know, fundraising dollars and uh, and increasing demand for services of those organizations, especially after a year like COVID or actually after a year like 2020 with everything that it uh, yes. uncovered. And so the fact that we sort of say, well, oh, well, you know, more than 60% of our donors w- won't ever come back. You know, that makes or breaks those metrics around customer loyalty, make or break whether businesses stick around. And so the organizations need to be starting even just with that data point. Do we actually know how many donors we're keeping? And I worked with an organization a couple years ago. We did some analytics. We, we dug into their data a little bit more. They were at 9% retention. Mm-hmm. And after some of the work that we did to put in place you know, a new donor welcome series, some other touch points for stewardship and cultivation, they doubled that retention in about a year, year and change, fiscal, you know, fiscal year and change. So it's possible to really focus on uh, on that growth by just little small tweaks. And, you know, again, those small tweaks may feel Herculean to some overstretched staff, but we've got to start by understanding how many donors are actually sticking around. Because going back to my comment earlier about boards, they are often only focused on the dollars. And when you can start to paint that picture a little bit differently saying, okay, this is how much we've raised typically. These are our trend lines dollar wise, but it's mostly been churn, you know, with maybe whatever their, whatever their retention rate is, or yes, we've, you know, but we've seen our donors are sticking around a little bit more year over year. So that's encouraging or average gift is up, is going up. That's encouraging. So all those things, I was in a board meeting with a client once a number of years back, and we had gotten a very, we had done a lot of work getting a handle on all of those core metrics. And they were at this point in their fiscal year where they weren't sure, I think it was maybe, maybe it was end of calendar year campaigns, and they weren't sure where they were, uh, they, they weren't sure if they were going to hit those end of year targets. And we started showing them all these other data points, and I could see literally the board members starting to relax a little because it didn't feel as dire as it might have been, you know, 20 minutes before they saw that they are, their numbers were increasing, the average gift was increasing. It was likely based on where we saw gifts coming in and how, how gifts were coming in in previous years that it was likely they were going to hit those targets. And so it was, um, you know, data, the data doesn't lie. And so basing it off of what your trend lines have been, what you have been able to do or not do gives you a much more informed approach. And it actually then helps you to be able to track and and know whether you're not, you're making a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So when you were doing the research with Adrian, were there specific data points that came out for you that you were like, for every organization, if you could only pay attention to these three things or five things or six things, I think I have mine in my head, but I'm curious (laughs) what came out in the research and um, what you're staring at. Yeah, well, let me start. I'll back up by saying that we, it started by a tweet that came through my feed. And somebody was asking, has anyone ever seen any any research about development plans? Are they effective in, in raising money? And the only thing I had ever seen was a study that Third Space Studio had done, uh, the Tether Yando's shop down in North Carolina, I think. And um, she had done a, a study, I think it was like 2015 or 16. And asked that question, and there was it, it seemed in the sample size that uh, of respondents that they there was a correlation. But that was the only thing I had ever seen. So I reached out to Adrian and said, "This has been on my mind. I'm thinking about this and wondering if we can do you know if we can collaborate on this research." And so 
my firm and Donor Search and Bloomerang all partnered with Adrian and the Institute for Sustainable Philanthropy to dig into this. And so the study was actually about development plans, but it, he broadened it in the survey questions to look at all those factors for success. And so the nice thing, the reassuring thing was that of the respondents, about 300 or so globally, said more than 70% have a plan and they are more or less, the majority of them are committed to sticking with that plan and tracking their progress against it. So that's great. Where we saw there was a gap was in the, the boards and sort of senior staff engagement. Again, not surprising considering other studies that we've seen, the board source and the underdeveloped and report that from the Haas Foundation in California have shown that there's a disconnect between boards and fundraising. So about 50 some percent, 57%, I think, felt like their boards were not as engaged as they could be. So all of the, the study, all the findings in the questions really drill down to the plan is an anchor for creating that culture. So that fundraising culture, and it's not just that culture of philanthropy, but it's that, that team culture, that sense of cohesion, that sense of we're all in this together. That was one of the important factors that can determine success. Data for sure. And so many of them do do some sort of external analysis, some sort of trend spotting, and a commitment to the plan really comes into then using those metrics, those internal metrics to measure their progress throughout the the fiscal year. And then that senior leadership and board involvement was also a factor that came into as a criteria for success. And together, those four, you know, culture is not, is such a big, that's a, that's a really big one, but it actually, it helps the, by having a development plan, it helps to create a greater sense of ownership, a greater sense of direction, a clarity that everyone can see that they have a role to play in raising money for their mission. I think the topic around culture should be a podcast on its own. I would okay. love to spend some time mm-hmm. just unpacking that. But the organizations that I have had the opportunity to work with, the plan is there. I hear the disconnect on the board sometimes as well. And so like bringing them together so that they understand the fundraising culture, to your point, that needs to to live and breathe really between the organization and its board as they support each other to drive the mission forward. Mm-hmm. But then you just get into the day-to-day. Okay, here's the plans. These are the things that I need to be doing. Here's what the metrics are. Most organizations, to your point, have a tool that they're leveraging for that to be true. But sometimes I find, at least my experience has been, that just we can sometimes get stuck in business as usual, or there's uh, maybe some underlying things inside the culture that just have been sacred cows, for mm-hmm. as an example, that just kind of hold you back. And so this is why I think this could be its own topic. We could talk about, you know, what are the things that are holding organizations back or leaders inside the organizations back? And then how do we safely find a way to put all of that on the table so that we can, we all want to show we're we're all in the nonprofit space. We all want the world to be a better place. We really want to make a difference in the causes that we are serving. And so how do we also help change the culture so that we can have the collaboration and teamwork needed to have the hard conversations and say, okay, this is missing and this is why, and let's figure out how to do something different here instead of actually doing the thing that we've been doing. And so yeah, I'd love yeah. to wade into that dialogue. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, and also, you know, going back to the plan, it helps to yeah. create a very clear sense from amongst everybody what's yeah. actually involved in fundraising success. So, you know, because all it gives a concrete, literal concreteness. Yeah. 
right? Because you've been, you're not just looking at a number, but you're looking at what are all the things that we need to, what are the activities? What are the resources? What's the staffing? All of those things that are going to be essential to hitting those numbers. And then everybody can see that, you know, go talk about, you know, silo busting earlier. Everybody sees that there's a part that they all can play in creating that. And And what's really interesting is, we asked a question about team spirit and those with a plan actually had stronger team spirits. They had stronger sense of their role within the organization as fundraisers. And they were actually more confident in raising money. So mm-hmm. the number I think was like they were, they had like something like 148% higher revenue rates than those that without a plan. And when we, and we asked because everything we released this just as everything was starting to lock down. So we added a few questions about COVID. And those with a plan, they did say that they were expecting to raise less money, but only by about 10% of their you know, differential, as opposed to those of the 65% who said they were expecting less revenue. Most who's, who didn't have a plan said they were expecting about 20%. And, you know, again, if you think about it, you know, the numbers, of course, the giving numbers are up. We know that. And we know the majority of organizations actually did see surges. But think about that. That 10-point differential is huge, can be huge for an organization. And so it goes to the fact that, you know, they are less, the, the ones who have sort of a, a defined strategy of how they're going to raise money are more adaptable. They can course correct. They're more a little bit more nimble. They are actually also they are a little bit more likely, a little bit more likely to be innovative. So they to test. And I say a little bit because the numbers were really fascinating. They were, we asked questions around their mindset. Are they more interested? Are they more willing to test and fail or just hold on, right? Be like the, Adrian calls it the defender mindset. Mm-hmm. And those with a plan had a little bit more confidence and a little bit more courage to test and to try and then to learn from that. So, you know, that, and again, in the business world, that whole you know, R&D and testing and iterating and the, you know, the viable products and those things that that you put things out to market and you you learn from it and you Mm -hmm. build on it. And it's, we don't always have that, that mindset in the nonprofit sector. Are you asking questions about your fundraising data, but are struggling to find actionable insights? Pursuance Giving DNA platform is here to help. We combine your constituent data, donation data, third-party information, and tack on augmented intelligence to provide you with insights about who is giving to you, what motivates them to give, and which channels through which they prefer to engage. The platform also comes with baked-in opportunity segments that show you who is most likely to give a large gift, is most likely to lapse, and most likely to give monthly. All this and much more is at the fingertips of fundraisers like you. No IT or data analyst required. Learn more at givingdna.com today. I'd love to jump in on that question, Barbara, about testing and kind of the business as usual attitudes that we've been discussing so far, because I learned about this several years ago, but there have been studies done specifically with children. Mm -hmm. And what they looked at is how do children who have a fixed mindset perform Mm -hmm. in school and how do children with a growth mindset perform? And the difference between the two is a fixed mindset is someone believes that their worth and their productivity and their, their general ability to succeed 
is a result of their their own talents. Rather, those with a growth mindset were generally children who have been praised for their hard work. Mm-hmm. So the difference is, is like they would they kind of did this experiment with puzzles and children with a fixed mindset. If they couldn't do the puzzle, they would get really frustrated and like upset. Versus children who had the growth mindset and were encouraged not on their ability to do the puzzle, but on their hard work and their diligence in trying to do, to do the puzzle, mm-hmm. had a much more relaxed attitude about it. And so the way that I'm thinking about this when it comes to how we apply this in our nonprofit and our like business settings is I would imagine that there can be kind of this, this culture of a fixed mindset that grows up around about how the fundraising plan throughout the year operates. Mm-hmm. And there might even be a little bit of fear around knowing what the data is because it could tell you something that you are afraid to change because it might have some kind of negative reflection on you know, your ability as a fundraiser. And so I kind of wonder if that's something that you looked at a little bit in your study, or if you see any correlations in your study. Yeah, we did. And I I actually slight uh, tangent for for a half a second, you know, there's, I agree with you, there is a fixed mindset within the sector, even just in thinking about how we do business, right. And so, you know, many organization leaders are stuck in, and this is not a criticism, but they are, they, they are driven by that fear of, what they don't have, how much money they don't have to be able to do whatever X, Y, and Z of their mission. And when I am working with with organizations and helping them to think about their fundraising plans for growth, you know, I I always start with, let's put aside how much we think this is going to cost. Let's put aside what you have or are raising money now to do. Let's put ourselves into that growth mindset. And that's, um, you know, and say, if money is not an issue, what do we do differently? What do we do more of? So when you bring that down to the development planning and that strategy, it is that, you know, if if the plan has been, if the plan, whether it's written down or not, has been working, people will say, let's just keep it as it is. But with so much technology, so many advances in the last, even the last year, it forced us to rethink everything about how we fundraise. So this is exactly the moment when organization and fundraising leaders need to be looking and asking those questions. How do we do our fundraising differently? What no longer serves us? And so that gala, I'm not completely anti-events, but that gala, which was really expensive, enormous drain on staff time, maybe barely broke even. Is that actually going to be the best way forward? And, um, you know, even though there might be a strong identity and affinity to that event, by board members or volunteers or whoever, let the numbers show. If it's been declining in revenue and that ROI, is that actually something to do after COVID? Um, is it the best event? And so taking, that's just one example, but pulling apart and saying, where have we historically been doing, or how have we historically been doing our fundraising? And are there things that we can be doing differently in the future that might be more cost-effective and as successful? And we know from last year, Using events as the as an example, those organizations that were able to um, to adapt to a virtual setting in some way, shape, or form, whether it was an actual virtual event or pulling apart that event to you know over a series of other digital communications, they ended up raising more money. So it actually probably wasn't the event itself that was the driver. It was that connection. It was that that mission. That sort of storytelling. So we know that the that those with the development plan were a little bit more open to testing because they could see 
trend lines. They they had done the due diligence of understanding what landscape they were operating in, and they could see where there might be some some room to test and iterate. This could be testing and iterating like doing events and switching to formats. It could be testing and iterating packages, communication packages. It could be testing and iterating, you know, mid to major strategies. You know, it could be testing and iterating whether a board member does, which they should, but whether or not they do a thank you call or some sort of personal outreach, all of those things. It doesn't have to be as monumental as deciding whether or not they stick with an, with an event. I think that I'm, I'm with you. One of the, I guess, if you can say it's a benefit of 2020 yeah. is the mindset shift that we all had to adapt and the fixed mindset had to move to a growth mindset because we had to figure out you know, how to survive. And so the yeah. sacred cows that were inside organizations that we always did it business as usual, <laughs> because that's what we just did. This is how yeah. we go about doing it was shattered. And so we were all shoved into a crisis moment. We all had to think differently about how we were going to get out of it. And what I would suggest is that people are now kind of coming into a new reality. We don't have to do it the way that we've done it before. We're now questioning all the things that were. Mm-hmm. We're saying we can do it better. And um, there's there's more data now um, at our fingertips. We've heard from the donors that um, new and old, if you will, have voted with their dollars. Mm-hmm. And so our role now is to, to say thanks for doing that. And then thanks for standing with us and helping us achieve whatever said mission is and then take them on the journey with us of where we're headed next mm-hmm. and do it with intentionality. And so that, you know, circles us right back to, do we have the data around those people that have come onto our file or reactivated on our file or have stayed with us? And then what are the right pathways to put them on? And those pathways are defined in the plans. And if we can ensure that we've got solid fundraising plans, what you said a few moments ago really resonated with me around the transparency. So the organizations that saw that lift year over year, they also had that transparent staff. They knew what the goals were. They knew what the plan was. They knew how they were going to get there. And so they were able to work probably better internally to achieve the goals. And I imagine that they were something that they were looking at. At least I had found you're looking at it every month or every quarter. And to your point, you're course correcting. And so it's just that it's that innovation mindset. So this is where we are in 2020 and now really 2021. Right. <laughs> it feels like a continuation to some point of 2020. And so I, a lot of the organizations that I'm talking to are still trying to shift and scenario plan and think, you know, think you're okay. We've made it through Q1. Believe it or not, it's April 1st. Now, what does Q2 look like and Q3 and Q4? And how do we continue that innovation mindset? That's I'm not saying goodbye to things that actually are still working, those things we want to make sure stay in place while we think and test and innovate. Yeah, I agree. And what's also interesting is that, well, one of my worries, and and this has been, you know, these these metrics are not new, but, you know, we know that first-time donors, on average, only 20% of them stick around. So again, talk about enormous churn. And we know that, you know, just from the surge and 10% surge in contributions, right? I think it was a 7% of, of increased donors, 10% in actual dollars contributed in early estimates. Many of those were new donors or reactivated. So do the organizations now have the, the infrastructure in place? If they have a plan, they probably do, or at least have enough of an awareness of how to track those. But this is an especially important time to try to sustain those newly reactivated or new brand new donors to the organization. Having been a disaster fundraiser for five years, I know that there are many who are inspired by 
you know, uh, the, um, dis- the, you know, the dire straits that happen in a disaster. So there may be some who will only ever give that once. And they're kind of one time because they're motivated in that moment, but that that's not how it, that's that organization or that mission is in line with their philanthropy generally. That's okay. But knowing how to distinguish between the two, those who are first time donors, because something really moved them and they chose your mission or your organization, and they might actually stick around a little longer knowing know who those folks are versus those who really truly are one-time donors, that's where, again, where the data, doing a little bit of data analysis comes into play because you can, uh, you're never going to know just from seeing a list of names and a list of dollar amounts. But if you can do a little bit of analysis and cross-reference against um, and get more insights into who else are they supporting, how much are they giving to other organizations like ours, that can then help you to refine a little bit further the outreach plans so that you can really inspire them to stick around a little bit longer. I love that you said that. The Giving DNA platform allows you to do that instantaneously. So one of the things that, as you know, I'm most passionate about is being able to get at that data and do data discovery really quickly. And so if we can get, you know, constituent files, so first name, last name, address, and giving history uploaded, and for all those new donors that have just come on the file or reactivated donors, we can get a quick picture and help organizations understand, okay, who are Honestly, we can look at the new names that came onto the file that have yet to give new donors, people that are about to lapse, people that recently lapsed, people that are most likely to become sustaining givers, which is another area of focus in 2021, as well as people that are most likely to upgrade, Mm -hmm. but to really get a full picture of what their profile is. And then to your point, really quickly drill in and say, okay, are they giving to organizations like mine? And have they done that in the last 12 months? And if so, at what dollar amount? And then just being able to pull that segmentation together and then say, okay, these are people that potentially could stay with my organization. They weren't a crisis um, giver. They were someone that actually potentially cares for organizations like mine and missions like mine and be able to put that communication and plan to that specific segment and take them on a journey. And so I love that you said that because it really does tee up regardless if you use the giving DNA platform or not, the need to get into the data, dig around just a little bit and identify, okay, now that we're coming out of 2020 and we've got this data, who are those segments that I need to speak to in a different way? Um, instead of just sending a blanket annual fund you know, email or a blanket welcome series, those are important, but can we customize them just a little bit to speak to the donor based on how they have engaged with you and what we know is important to them? Mm-hmm. That's right. And it, it this is not at all um, to imply that you know organizations wouldn't be stewarding all their donors. I mean, yes. I'm not saying that at all. But it helps them, you know, it, it helps them to think, okay, so we have to, you know, hopefully we've we've got in place a really strong stewardship plan. But to get to that next level, this helps us to understand who are these people who, you know, will, you know, are are supporting organizations like ours or the subsector like ours. And then let's, let's be more strategic in our limited staff bandwidth to start to figure out, you know, more customized or more multi-channel approaches or personal phone calls or personal notes or, you know, uh, offline and online communications. Because one of the things I definitely saw last year, and I know you saw it as well, Becca, is, in the early, probably early to maybe halfway through 2020, or at least the pandemic phase of 2020, all uh, print communication seemed to stop and everything went digital. And we did see a surge in phone, in Mm -hmm. phone calls, which was great, but 
we lost that sense of multi-channel communications. And we know from the team at Next After, they did a study at the end of last year and they found, and, and I'm sure you saw this, they found that those who were communicating a multi-channel approach who were not siloed actually were, you know, three times more generous and they were two times more likely to stick around. So the data will really help us inform how we prioritize our very limited bandwidth to really try to raise the most money. So the last thing that um, I'll share, and it's not actually, it, is, it can be done in the Giving DNA platform, but we have created a scenario planning tool to your point. And so if you're having to take that limited budget and say, okay, where do I need to invest next? Mm-hmm. Um, or what will what do I need to do in order to achieve the goals that I've outlined this year? It may be helpful. And um, we'll put a link to the URL on this podcast so that if you want to jump into it, you can but it will allow you to get an idea of, okay, these are the plans that I have in place. And then how do I need to scenario plan as I think about 2021 and maybe even into 2022? I love it. I think that's great. And it will, again, going back to what we saw were components for fundraising success from the study. It was that data, that commitment to the plan, being able to track it, taking the time to plan this all out, to really map out what they want to do and how they want to do um, their fundraising activities to raise their goals. So yeah, all of this ties in so well to fundraising success. Barbara, I've got one final question for you before we wrap up today. And we've been talking about a few different numbers and ways that uh, nonprofits can think differently about their development planning. And I know for you that you also work with many nonprofits, specifically in the realm of upgrading those mid and major donors And something encouraging that we saw from the latest fundraising effectiveness project reports is that giving in terms of donations was up across the board. It was up 8% with mid-level donors and then 10% with major donors, which was encouraging to see because I know some might have predicted that major donor giving would have gone down based on previous trends that we know about major giving. And so as nonprofits are thinking about their fundraising plans and there's still a lot of uncertainty in 2021 about when things will you know, get back to quote normal, but what did you generally see over the course of 2020 that changed in the realm of mid and major donors? And where do you see that trend line heading, you know, the next six months at least? Yeah. So what I will say is I was, I was actually really encouraged to see those data points because we knew at the beginning of the pandemic from uh, a, a survey that Fidelity had sent out um, to their clients, their DAF holders and so forth, that th- they asked a question of how they thought, again, early in the pandemic, how did they think their giving was going to compare to 2019? And 50 to 75% of them said that they were either going to maintain levels of giving or increase it because the needs were great, their communities were suffering, the organizations they support need them now more than ever. So all of that It wasn't a huge quantifiable study, but it was an important finding. And so to see the data points in in the FEP report were really encouraging to me because they correlated exactly what the donors had told us that they wanted to do and they would do. So what I feel like needs to be happening and was starting to happen a little bit is organizations realize that they, of any size, that they can raise major gifts. I have been long saying that it's the major gift, any organization of any size, it's however you define it as a, as a nonprofit. So, you know, the fact that the $1,000 gifts jumped by 10% is encouraging to me. And it reassures me that organizations were able to accept it in a way that will hopefully they can sustain it. 
and the fact that mid-level jumped and that we're even paying attention to that data point, it helps to uh, re-underscore that this isn't annual giving and major gifts. And then of course, that middle that we forget about, right? Mm-hmm. The missing middle. So um, it shows that there's that path for upgrading. And I think that the emphasizing those two data points are going to be important to continue to track the nonprofits. So if anything, hopefully nonprofits will see and have come away with a greater awareness that there is that path that we saw at those at those levels. These were the exact, these mid-level donors were the exact ones who were disappearing in 2018 mm-hmm. when the tax cut and jobs act went into effect. You know, we were kind of distracted with the shiny object of the mega gifts that, that were happening. But those mid-level donors were the ones that were disappearing for many different reasons. So hopefully last year and, and emphasizing these numbers now will put us back on that focus that these are our donors who might actually have deeper capacity and they're just not giving at that level right now. They're not making their very best gift for lots of different reasons. Or they, that might be their very best gift and let's honor that. Let's recognize that. Let's celebrate that. Let's keep them around so they feel like that was um, the, a best, the best investment of their very hard-earned uh, resources. Well, Barbara, thank you so much for your time today. We'll be sure to put a couple of the links that we mentioned today in the show notes for the podcast as well as when we upload this to our uh, video hosting platform. So anyone who's listening or watching and is curious about digging into anything, they can do so there. Barbara, if anyone wants to work with you or has a couple of questions that they've got percolating right now, where can they get in touch with you? Sure. They can visit me on my website, whillconsulting.com. Thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed our discussion. Oh, this was a treat. Thanks, Leah. Thanks, Becca.